I've shared my testimony with you on numerous occasions, um, but one of the things that still, um, I can't say surprises me, or one of the things that I still look back in awe is how patient God was with me. I was raised in a Catholic home. I was obviously familiar with God and Christ and I'll say a fair amount of our theology and all that, um, but I didn't know Christ, didn't have a personal relationship with him. And uh, I've shared with you before how for a year or two I struggled and I would cry out to God for help and I would go out for long walks at 3 o'clock in the morning and I would pray and beg him for help and I'm just feeling kind of lost in that. And yet the very people that he put into my life to kind of lead and direct me, I didn't really pay much attention to. I still have a letter that my dad wrote me on my confirmation. Um, sits up on my, my shelf in my office. And uh, it's a letter he wrote me that basically encouraged me to trust God and my need for God. And um, when I you know, got to college, there was a guy that kind of chased me around, I'll say, trying to share the gospel with me, and I kept pushing him away, pushing me. But yet God somehow still brought me to the point of salvation where I was willing and able and, and, um, and sat down and prayed for him to come into my life. And it just reminds me how patient God is with us when we genuinely seek him. And we're going to see an example of that today in Cornelius. But this is a pretty important passage. Like Acts chapter 9, which was the conversion of Saul, that was a critical turning point in the book of Acts. In fact, it was a critical turning point in God's redemptive plan for history. This passage today is just as critical as that. Um, it serves as a transition point when the gospel really ultimately begins to move out into the Gentile region, which is going to include all of us. I don't know if any Jewish folks in here. I don't know if any of you have any Jewish Blood, I used to tease Steve Schmeckel all the time. Most of you know Steve, about how he's got the best of both worlds. He's Jewish, but he's a Christian. Kind of Jewish from his mom's side. Like, you get everything. You get all of Abraham's promises, plus. And um, when we think about Gentile um, conversions, that's the majority of us here in the United States. Really, In fact, that's the majority of the church is actually Gentile. And so this is a critical passage today. We're in Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at two things, and they're primarily, I'm going to say, preparatory, meaning God preparing for what's about to happen. He's going to prepare Cornelius, a Gentile, and he's going to prepare Peter, a Jew, for what's going to come in the next couple of weeks. And what's going to come in these next couple of weeks is a fairly major paradigm shift. In fact, one of the things you'll hear over the course of the next um, few weeks here is this talk of this paradigm shift. A paradigm is basically a, a lens through which you look at something. You know, evolution would be a paradigm. You kind of view the evidence you see outside through the lens of evolution. You're going to come to one conclusion. If you look at, if your paradigm is you believe in the scriptures and the creation account, then then that paradigm will tell you how to interpret the, the data we see. And so you're going to hear a lot about that, but there's going to be a really major paradigm shift about how the Jews viewed the Gentiles, um, about how to understand God's redemptive plan. And uh, so that's going to come in, a, in the next couple of weeks here. But this is preparatory today. This is getting two individuals ready for that paradigm shift to kind of shake the world. So the first one is with Cornelius. And let me, let me kind of break this down into two primary parts. The first one is just going to be this. The Lord responds to Cornelius' devotion. 
the Lord responds to Cornelius' devotion. Let's start with uh, chapter 10, the first two verses. Now, there was a man of Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. We learn a few things about Cornelius here. First thing is he lives in a place called Caesarea. Caesarea was located along the Mediterranean coast. It uh, served as the regional capital for Rome. Remember, Rome controlled all of Israel. This was the regional capital. This is where you'd find the military headquarters. It's where you'd find the Roman prefect, which is kind of like the governor of sorts over all of Israel. Um, According to Josephus, the town was inhabited mostly by Gentiles, Greek-speaking individuals. Uh, most of them were military figures. It kind of reminds me, like, you go down to Dayton and you see all the military people sometimes because there's a fairly major Air Force base down there. Acts chapter 9, if you remember from that, Philip, ultimately, we're told, ended up living in Caesarea after he had evangelized part of Samaria. He actually then went and spent the rest of his life at Caesarea. Probably a very important move. Um, kind of remember he went outside of Jerusalem, he was scattered, went down to work with the, with the uh, Jewish folks down in Samaria and that. Well, he ultimately ended up going to um, Caesarea, where I would imagine much of his ministry probably focused on Jews at that time as well. The one last thing I'll point out about Caesarea is Paul actually was there as a prisoner for about two years before they shipped him off to Rome. So it was an important place, and that's where... Cornelius is from. That's why we primarily understand that he is a Gentile, because everything so far is described what we would expect of a Gentile. You're told here he's a centurion. The Roman military was broken down into these different groups. Legions were 6,000 men. Cohorts were 600 men. And then there were units of 100 men. He was part of this Italian cohort. He commanded about 100 men. So he was a military commander. So we know that he was a centurion. That makes him actually a fairly important figure. They were generally um, fairly well off. They, ha- they had a tremendous amount of respect. They were given a certain amount of honor. So he was an individual who would have been probably well-known, well-respected, a man of means. You notice that in the text we're going to learn today that he um, probably had servants within the household. So he was fairly well off. But the most significant thing we learn about Cornelius is that he was devoted to God. You notice here that Luke says that he was a devout man. That's not a word we use a whole lot here, especially with the younger generation, but devout means to be deeply religious. It doesn't mean to be Christian. It simply means to be a very religious, devoted to something. In this context, he was a very devoted man. There's three evidences that we find here in the text of this devotion. The first one we're told here is that he feared God with all of his household. Fearing God in the Bible is a euphemism for being honestly and genuinely devoted to God. It's used in the Old Testament. So if you were a God-fearer, you were somebody who, the best way to describe of it is loved God. What's interesting is that with Cornelius, you notice here it says that it wasn't just Cornelius, but it was his whole entire household. He had a major impact. His religious faith, if you will, had a tremendous impact on his family. And we're going to see that also in the text today when he gathers some people Second thing we're told about him there is that he gave alms to the Jewish people. Alms were basically good acts. It's not just money. We think of money oftentimes when you hear of alms, but that's just part of it. Alms were doing good things for people. They were acts of charity, things like giving money, giving food, giving clothing, doing nice things for other people. And it was fairly uncommon in the first century for Roman soldiers to care about the Jews, to treat them with respect. In fact, they had a certain amount of disdain for them. Think about the way that they treated Jesus. That was fairly common. It was unusual 
for a Roman, especially somebody as high up as he was, to give alms to care for the Jewish people. And that's something that he did. The last thing we're told is that he prayed continually. It appears in this context that he probably followed the Jewish pattern of praying three times a day, which would be sunrise, 3 p.m., and then nightfall. So it's not clear if he was a Jewish convert per se, but he was a devout man who loved the Lord, he was good to the Jewish people, and he prayed on a regular basis. That's what we're told about him. This is a religious man. Reminds me somewhat of myself in the sense that I went to church every Sunday morning with my family, sat in the front row of this big Catholic church. I went through catechism. I went through confirmation. I'd go to bed every night and say my, I call it my canned prayers. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know, every night we'd sit down to eat dinner. We would pray. Much like Cornelius here. But the one thing that Cornelius lacked was the same thing I lacked. He didn't know Jesus Christ. He did not have that personal relationship with him. Now, we're told here in the text that while Cornelius is engaged in his regular afternoon prayer time, something fairly remarkable happens to him. An angel appears to him, comes in a vision, and he offers him some encouragement, and he gives him some instruction. Look at verses 3 through 4. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius! And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So the first thing we see here is this angel shows up out of nowhere, shocks him, clearly he's shocked by it, as we all would be. But he first things out of his mouth is a form of encouragement. Notice he says here, he tells Cornelius that his alms had ascended as a memorial before God. It's kind of an interesting statement. The purpose of a memorial is what? To recognize, to honor somebody, correct? Um, is to remember and, and um, hold it kind of dear in your heart. Well, in the Old Testament, when the grain offering was actually made, um, or there's another thing called the showbread offering, but when these two offerings were made before the Lord, the priest got to eat most of that. So you'd bring your grain in, and most of that would go to the priest, and that's how they were cared for. Remember, They weren't able to farm themselves. They weren't given land themselves. So that was a way that they were taken care of. However, a very small portion, usually a tenth, of that grain offering or that showbread offering was to be set aside and it was taken to the altar and it was given up. And the text tells us it was a memorial before the Lord. So they would take a portion of that and they would take it to the Lord. They put it on the altar. They would burn it. And the reason for that was to remind them of the Lord. It was a memorial. And so that the priests didn't forget who they were serving, why they were serving, why the people were bringing the grain in. And so as part of that, they were, in some respects, forced to remember the Lord so that they wouldn't forget. Otherwise, what do you think would happen? The whole system comes corrupt. People bring in the grain, you know, and the priests just eat it all. And they soon forget why they have the grain and what they're supposed to do with it and about the goodness and the provision of the Lord. And so he set up the system where they would remember him. So they would take a portion of it and it was a memorial. And so in essence what this angel is saying is that God recognized when he looked at Cornelius, when Cornelius gave to the Jewish people as he sat and prayed, 
the Lord recognized it as Cornelius' way of remembering the Lord, which tells us something pretty significant. Cornelius wasn't giving to the Jewish people to gain their favor. He was simply doing it as a way of remembering the Lord. That's pretty significant because how oftentimes, as you think about it, do religious people do things to gain things, right? You think about even politics or other things. There would be every reason to think that maybe Cornelius here might have um, had other motives behind doing what he did. Maybe to keep the peace with the Israelites, you know. There wasn't great... There was a lot of tension between the Jews and the, the Romans. But that's not why he did it. In other words, his giving to the Jewish people was a genuine act of remembering the Lord. So his offering, we're told, went up to the Lord as a memorial. Pretty remarkable thing. Now the angel then moves on from this encouragement now to some instruction. He basically instructs Cornelius, send some men over to Joppa and pick up Peter. Look at verses 5 through 8. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who is also called Peter. He is staying in a, in a house with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. Verse 8 says, I'm sorry, verse 7, When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. That tells us he was a little wealthy. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the instructions from this angel are, go to Joppa and ask for a man named Peter and bring him back here. That's all it says here. However, there's two other places in the book of Acts that give us a little more information as to what he told Cornelius. One is if you jump all the way down to verse 33, you'll find out that the angel also told him that Peter would bring him a message of some kind. Verse 33 says, So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So the first thing we see there is that the angel told Cornelius, Peter's got something to share with you. It's something the Lord has to say, and he's going to do it through Peter. Now, there's one other passage, verse 11, or I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 14, that's even more specific. Chapter 11, verse 14 Peter's recounting this, and he says, this is what Cornelius told him. Cornelius said to him, and he, Peter, will speak words to you by which, look at this, you will be saved, you and all your household. So what this angel told Cornelius was, Cornelius, the Lord has heard your prayers, he's seen your alms, he's honored by it, it's a memorial before him, but you need to know more. And so he tells him, go get Peter. This man will tell you what you need to know to be saved. You and your household. That tells us something about the Lord. The takeaway, I put two of them down for this. One takeaway is that religious devotion, praying, charitable giving, are not enough to save anyone. Not even Cornelius. Not even me, as an 18-year-old Catholic. Cornelius had all of those things, but he still lacked one thing, how to be saved. Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. What's the key? He who has the Son. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 states this, he who has the Son has life. 
He who does not have the Son does not have life. So when it comes to salvation, it's pretty simple. If you got Jesus, you got eternal life. If you ain't got Jesus, you ain't got eternal life. It's that simple. And that was true of Cornelius. In spite of his love and devotion to God and all of his praying and all of his gift giving, he still needed to call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. There's an awful lot of religious people running around. There's an awful lot of religious people in the Christian church that every Sunday morning get up and they sit where you guys are sitting that are religious, they're devout, they don't really know Jesus. They don't abide in Him. They rely on their religion. They're no more saved than the person who doesn't show up for church on a Sunday morning. And that kind of leads me to the second takeaway from this, and this is what's remarkable to me. Even with that in mind, God responds to those who are devoted, meaning He hears that. He hears their desire to know Him, those who are genuinely devoted. Cornelius was a Gentile that made him an outsider. It's a group of people whom Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says they're excluded from the commonwealth, the citizenship of Israel. They're strangers to the biblical covenants. They're void of hope. They're without God. That was the Gentiles. Yet the Lord not only saw Cornelius' devotion, he heard his prayers, he was pleased with his offering, but then he responds to that genuineness that Cornelius had to know him, and he sends an angel to him. He says, okay. You're doing your best to know me. What you need is Jesus. I'm going to send somebody to you that can tell you about Jesus, that can tell you how to be saved. It reminds me of something that happened to Jesus. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is approached by a Gentile, by a Canaanite. Now, Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, was first and foremost sent to the house of Israel. That's what his earthly ministry was focused on. Ministry to the Gentiles would come with the establishment of the church. But Jesus was first sent to the house of Israel. He was their Messiah. Salvation would come through Israel. We would be blessed through Abraham. So it made sense that Jesus Christ came first and foremost to Jews. But while he was here, he didn't ignore the Gentiles. In fact, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, he gets approached by one. So, start reading at 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, from, what, from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she's, she keeps shouting at us. Well, he was going to use this as a lesson. He wasn't ignoring her. He was going to use it as a lesson. Verse 24, But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, that's my primary mission here now. Her time will come later. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. She's desperate. She's genuine for his help. She recognizes what he can do. So he says to her in verse 26, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that's not a derogatory statement. He wasn't calling her a dog. 
simply an idiom used that basically says, I've got my priorities here. I can't ignore these priorities. Take care of this. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. In other words, what we have here is this woman who genuinely, desperately reached out to Christ to heal her daughter. And what does he do? He responds to that. That's what we see here with Cornelius, I believe. He had this genuineness, this desire to know the Lord, just like I did. Now, I wasn't willing to accept the means of salvation, if you will. God had to work on my heart for that. But I desperately did want to know him. I was crying out to him for help. I knew he could help. I just didn't know how he was going to help. And so for at least a year or two, while I'm sort of begging him for help but pushing him away, he was patient. But he heard, I'm convinced every time I'd go out at three in the morning and walk and bawl my eyes out and pray and say, God, I'm hurting here. Life stinks. I need your help. He didn't shut his ears and say, well, you were raised in a church. You should have known. He heard that. You know, Peter tells us that in his day where people were saying, well, where is this Jesus? How come he's not come back yet? And Peter's rebuke to them was, God's not slow. He's patient. He doesn't want any to suffer. In other words, he's just waiting until you wake up. He's being patient. And that's what we see here, I think, with Cornelius, is that the Lord hears that. When Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, that's exactly what he's referring to. There are people out there that don't know how to know the Lord, but given the opportunity to hear the gospel, may respond. So he sends us out. And here Cornelius is, wanting to know, trying to know. The Lord says, I'll send you Peter. I'll get you the answers you need. But before that could happen... Peter's going to have to be challenged some, and he's going to have to be prepared. So we have Cornelius being prepared here. Where he's now waiting, and we're going to fact, they're going to find in a second here that, or in the next week, that when Peter shows up, he had gathered his family, his personal servants, his relatives, and his close friends all crammed into his house. Peter shows up, meets him outside, but as soon as Peter walks in the house, it's like there's all these people. And so we find that Cornelius was now anxious and ready to hear the message that Peter would bring to him. So the Lord has prepared Cornelius to hear the gospel and to be saved. But it's going to require some some, uh, work on Peter's behalf. So we're in chapter 10, verses 9 and following. The The Lord has to challenge Peter's religious conviction and has to prepare him to actually take the gospel to Gentiles. That's not something Peter would have done on his own. It wasn't something he was prepared to do on his own. It's not something he even understood on his own. So there's primarily two challenges here. The first challenge is philosophical and theological. He's got to overcome Peter's philosophy of life and his religious convictions here. The Lord reveals to Peter that he should not call something unclean which he, the Lord, has declared clean. Look at verse nine, verses 9 through 16. On the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the rooftop or the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. 
But he became hungry and was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up, and an object like a sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were on it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So the first challenge is philosophical and theological. Peter's praying when he becomes hungry. He falls into this trance, and he experiences this divine dream, if you will, or vision. In the vision, he sees this large sheet being lowered down by its four corners. On the sheet, there's a bunch of animals running around. Based on Peter's response, we know that these animals were those types of animals considered unclean by the law. Animals that he was forbidden to eat. The food laws are described in Leviticus 18, or I'm sorry, 11 and Deuteronomy 14. I don't want to have to go through there and read all that to you, but essentially, unclean animals refer to those things that they were not able to eat. Things like pigs, horses, reptiles, birds of prey, fish without fins and scales, certain insects. So there were certain foods that were off-limits. Not only were the Israelites forbidden from eating such things, but they would be defiled themselves by even touching them. Now, it's popular in many Christian circles to claim or suggest that God outlawed those foods for health reasons, and that's really why God did it. He was trying to protect the Israelites. The problem with that is he allowed them to eat them after this. (laughs) It really was more to do with teaching them about holiness, because he did the same thing with certain objects within the temple. One way to teach somebody about holiness is to sort of separate things. This is good, this is bad, this is holy, this is not holy. And so he used that as a tool, the food laws, to teach them about purity and about holiness. It really didn't have to do with anything about the food itself. It was that God said, that's unholy, this is holy. This will teach you about holiness, teach you about me, because it represents who he is. And so this sheet is coming down. And Peter sees this smorgasbord of forbidden food in front of him. Regardless of how hungry he is, the law would say you can't eat it. What's kind of, I think, unexpected here for Peter is that as he's seeing this, this voice from heaven comes down and says, kill it and eat it. He knows this is the Lord. But what startles him is the fact that the Lord is telling him to violate the law. That doesn't make any sense. We can all appreciate that, can't we? If I stood up here today and told you to do something, and I said, God said, but you knew it went against the scriptures, that would cause you some pause, would it not? Some of you might come pick me up and carry me out. So Peter's response is understandable here. He says, by no means. Absolutely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. So his response is is appropriate. But the Lord responds by saying, don't consider unholy what I've cleansed. He's referring specifically to food at this point. He's initially telling Peter here, Peter, you can eat these foods because I've cleansed them, the text says. Why? There's no need for the Old Testament food laws anymore with Christ. Don't need to be taught about the holiness or the unholiness anymore, like he did in the Old Testament with the rules and regulations. 
You know, which is why Paul was able to be like the Gentiles when he's with the Gentiles and be like the Jews when he's with the Jews, not to offend them. For the same reason, when when Peter goes back to James, or I'm sorry, Paul and I think Barnabas go back to the Jerusalem church because some Jews are telling Gentiles you got to obey all the food laws and all the Old Testament laws, and they said, well, no, not so much. But so we don't offend the Jews, maybe avoid blood, you know, the food that's been strangled or stuff that's still got blood in it. They didn't say, well, you know what? Yeah, tell the Gentiles obey all the Old Testament food laws. Paul also tells his readers, the Corinthians, that they go to the marketplace, not to worry about the foods that are in the marketplace. Go ahead and eat them unless they tell you they've been sacrificed to idols and all this stuff, you know. Just take it home and eat it. You're okay, why? Because God had cleansed. And so he's telling Peter, Peter, you can eat. I've cleansed these. They're no longer unholy at this point. But we're told here in this text that Peter every time says, nope, can't do it, Lord. Because when it says that this happened three times, it doesn't just mean that he dropped the sheet three times. It means that Peter responded no three times. So this vision ends with Peter still refusing to eat. We're not really sure. Peter had some difficulty in comprehending and expecting what the Lord was teaching him. He didn't really understand the importance of what this ultimately would come to mean or why the vision was there. In fact, we find out afterwards here that he's still a little bit perplexed. Um, Not quite sure what to make of it. The second challenge that he gets here is not so much theological or philosophical, but it's practical. He got the illustration. Now it's time to put it into practice and him to see, oh, it really wasn't about the meat. That's what he taught me. But there's a bigger lesson here. The Lord reveals to Peter that he's sending him on a mission into what Peter believed would have been unclean territory and unclean people. Look at verse 17 through 20. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind what to do or what the vision was about, which he have seen, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked direction for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And while calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, these men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I've sent them myself. So the second challenge now is much more practical. The Lord has just told him, Peter, eat. And Peter said, I can't, that violates the law. But he was perplexed. Got to be some meaning there. I don't really know what it's about. What's interesting is the the tense that's used there means that it was an ongoing thing, meaning Peter continued to struggle with it, continued to reason through it. He didn't just go, I wonder what that was about, and then move on about his day. He continued to struggle throughout, throughout the time period between when the men were coming and when they showed up. Didn't quite make sense to him. So he's struggling with it. In fact, it's not until he meets Cornelius that he fully comes to grips with what's going on. But while he's trying to figure it out, the men arrive and the Lord tells Peter to go back with them to Caesarea. Um, I love the fact that it tells him here, it says, go back without misgivings. It's an interesting word that's used there because um, it's got a variety of uses in the New Testament. Um, It basically means to make a judgment about something. However, when it's used in a positive sense, it talks about, it's a way of talking about discernment. It's a good thing. But when it's used in a negative sense, it means to argue. And that's really the way that it's being used here. Peter just got done arguing with the Lord. 
Three times. Nope, nope, not. I know you said it's okay, but I'm, I'm not going to do it, Lord. Maybe I'm going to fail this test, you know? Um, so the angel basically says, go back and don't argue with me. It's okay. So he sort of calls out Peter's, I'll call it obstinance or stubbornness. He refused to eat. Now he says, now, I'm sending you to Caesarea. Go with the men, the Gentiles that are now at your doorstep. And don't argue with me about it. Go. Do it. Why would Peter have doubts? Why would he argue with something like that? Well, the answer is found a little bit later in verse 28. If you jump down there, Peter tells Cornelius when he shows up to the audience, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Basically, Peter's saying, my paradigm... You people are unclean. You're unholy. And if I associate with you, I'm unholy too. It's unlawful. Now, the thing we have to be careful with here, the Old Testament law did not forbid hanging out with Gentiles. In fact, there's Gentiles in Jesus' line. Think of Ruth, for instance. Old Testament didn't forbid it. But by the time we get to Jesus' day, they're all off limits. Why is it? Well, see, Gentiles didn't follow the food laws or the purity laws. So they were unclean. Therefore, if I associate with them, I go hang out with them, it's going to rub off on me and I'm going to be unclean too. So, hands off. So now, the Jewish law is just as important as the Old Testament. Even though it doesn't say not to do it in the Old Testament, they've got their religious convictions now. We don't hang out with Gentiles because you people are unclean and I'm not going to risk it. Do you ever think we struggle with that sometimes ourselves as Christians? Don't associate with the unsaved because, oh, they, you know, maybe it'll rub off on us. It doesn't honor God. And Jesus was accused of hanging out with sinners. Now, it doesn't, I hate it when they say, oh, he's all chummy, chummy with sinners. No, that's not what Jesus did. But he associated with sinners. Wasn't afraid it was going to rub off on them, on him. And so, Peter here is struggling with this paradigm that says, you don't associate with the Gentiles, and God's now, or this angel's telling me, go see the Gentiles. And so he's being challenged in that conviction. Why? Because the Lord is preparing him to share the gospel with the very people that he tries to avoid. Now the Lord's assurance to Peter here is that it's okay because I myself am telling you to do it. Look down, I think if it's uh, verse 28 again. I'm sorry, verse... um, Right there in verse 20. But get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings. I have sent them myself. There's a double pronoun there. I, myself, which stresses the fact that I'm the one sending you. It's okay to go, Peter. So Peter does what Peter does, which is he finally obeys. Maybe a bit reluctantly, but he does it. So verse 21 through 23 tells us, goes ahead and invites the men in. Peter went down to the men. Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? See, he still doesn't quite understand. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. So he associates with the Gentiles by inviting them in. So he's at least obeying the Spirit at this point. So what's our takeaway from this? Here, one takeaway, I think, is that 
Sometimes our convictions don't always match God's commands. They didn't in Peter's case. Remember, Jesus said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and oh, by the way, to the ends of the earth, which they would have understood as the Gentiles. But yet at this point, Peter still has a problem going to the Gentiles. It hasn't quite sunk in yet what God's going to do. The promise to Abraham was that he would bless all the nations. It hasn't quite sunk in yet with the Jewish people or even the Jewish disciples here. So sometimes our convictions don't necessarily line up with the word of God. Peter's convictions weren't based on the law. They were based on some religious traditions. So maybe like Peter, we need to be challenged sometimes. Peter, in order to be prepared to witness to those, there are some people I don't like, folks. There are some people I get a little squeamish around because of the way they act or the way that they talk or the things that they say or the things that they do or the way that they dress. It's not people I'd want to go hang out with. But they need Jesus just like everybody else, don't they? One of the things that... um, was written on my report card as a kid more than once was the teacher said I always um, hung out with the kids that nobody else wanted to hang out with. Mom always thought it was a neat thing. I always kind of thought of me because I was one of those kids. <laughs> you know, kind of fit right in, right? Um, but we're all like that where, you know, we, we have our likes and our dislikes and our convictions and, and, and whatnot. And, um, but in order for God to prepare Peter to go to Cornelius, he had to break down these religious convictions. And so that's what the vision was about ultimately. That's what telling him, hey, these men are here to get you. Just do it, Peter. Don't argue with me. Um, he's preparing Peter to kind of look past this, this paradigm that he had that would have prevented the Gentiles from being saved. And so just like he prepared Cornelius, he's now preparing Peter. And we're like that sometimes too. We've got to be reminded. Um, Another takeaway, I think this is the final one for me here, is that um, God's redemptive plan always included the Gentiles. It always included everybody. doesn't mean everybody's saved, but that he was going to do it through Israel. God has always had this plan that he would redeem the world through Israel. We've seen his promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 26. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul repeated that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, I love this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. Gospel is not a New Testament thing. It's only realized in the New Testament. But it was preached to Abraham. And I'm going to propose it was preached to Adam and Eve in the garden when the Lord promised that Jesus would literally crush the head of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. We see all of this play out in the book of Acts where God first established his church. Where did he start? With the Jews in Jerusalem. Excuse me, the Jews in Jerusalem. And they went to Samaria, which was a challenge for the Jews, because remember, Samaritans and, and those just outside, they weren't really Jews, 
But God kind of pushes the envelope, takes it out to the Sumerians, the Judeans, out there in the diaspora. Remember, they sent Peter down, go investigate this, Peter. You know, we got to see what's going on there. So Peter goes down, and the Lord waited to, dis- to, to put the Holy Spirit into them, if you will. Why? So Peter could see it and go, oh, yeah, so, okay, okay, it's not just us, it's the Samaritans too now. And now he's really going to take and sort of tighten those screws a little bit. And we're going to take you out to the Gentiles now, Peter. Which would have been even more difficult for Peter. And so the Lord is preparing him, but it's all about God's redemptive plan. And we see it play out in the book of Acts here. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, he's talking to us Gentiles, that's who his readers were, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. A little bit further down in the same passage, chapter 2, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. In other words, what Paul is telling the Gentiles there is, God has chosen to save you too. Through the work that he's done with Israel. And so as we look at these two episodes right here, what we really see is you've got God doing exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. He's going to build his church, beginning in Jerusalem, taking it out to to Samaria and Judea, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. He would take it from the Jews and move all the way out to the Gentiles. That was the plan. That's what Jesus told the disciples they would do. So we come to this passage today. We've already seen the salvation of Saul, whom Jesus will use tremendously to reach the Gentiles. We've seen that. And then what happens is he now takes us back kind of to Peter here, and he's showing us how he's preparing Peter, who will ultimately go back to Jerusalem and prepare the rest of the apostles for what God is about ready to do in the second half of the book of Acts, which is to push the envelope all the way out to the Gentiles. And again, it's been his plan all along. You and I are Gentiles. Thank God he did that. But in order to do it, he had to prepare Cornelius by saying, Cornelius, your religious devotion isn't enough. You need Jesus. He had to do it for Peter, because Peter had to overcome this misunderstanding of righteousness and holiness and recognize that even the Gentiles, that the plan from Abraham and even before that has always been, Peter, I'm going to use you and your people to save everyone. Meaning, Gentiles too. Amen to that? It's a pretty remarkable thing. We're going to see over the course of the next couple of weeks how this plays out because there's more to the Peter and Cornelius story that goes on. And uh, it's really kind of interesting how it all works out and the things that have to happen um, for God to accomplish his redemptive plan. But one of the things I love about this is I kind of look at it as, you know, you're always kind of told to have a plan and to work it. And that's exactly what we sort of see with this book of Acts. This isn't just a hodgepodge of, well, here, let me tell you what happened in the first century. This is a very slow, methodical plan being worked out by the Holy Spirit at God's command and at the, at the leadership of Christ to accomplish his redemptive plan that started all the way back in Genesis. So it's kind of this neat thing. And so again, what we have here is this great story of preparation as we're about to cross the threshold into the explosive, literally the explosive growth of the Gentile church. In fact, we'll see that when it comes to Antioch here in a couple of weeks, where Antioch, a Gentile church, became as important as Jerusalem. 
in reaching the world.